Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Our speaker this evening attained his Master's of Divinity and Master of Arts degree in Moral Theology from Mount St. Mary's Seminary in 1989. Ordained to the priesthood in that same year, Monsignor Pope has served at several parishes in the Archdiocese of Washington and was named a Monsignor in 2005 by Pope Benedict XVI. He has served as pastor at Holy Comforter St. Cyprian Parish in Washington, D.C. since 2007. He also blogs regularly for the Archdiocese of Washington. Please join me in gratefully welcoming back to the ICC, Monsignor Pope. Welcome, Monsignor. Such a blessing to have you with us tonight. Monsignor, let's let's begin in prayer together. Well, Lord, I, I first of all uh, want to lift up before you um, a number of people who lost their lives or were injured or hurt in uh, Kansas City and um, through the shooter at the parade. People joyfully gathered to celebrate a victory, Lord, but uh, someone got lost. And um, so we, we, we pray for all of those who were hurt or injured. We pray also in my own city here, just up the street, um, uh, the three police officers were shot uh, today, and um, just just lots of lots of sorrow, Lord, in our world and in the church. However, Lord, in the midst of this sorrow, we do gather that you're faithful, and we're in the boat with you, Jesus, and we remember uh, that you uh, can make all things well and even use difficult, painful things to uh, bring out greater glories than we could imagine. So we do ask you, Lord, we entrust to your care all who suffer today. We entrust to your care our very selves. But, Lord, we also, in this particular retreat, want to try to draw close to you, Heavenly Father, through the heart of your Son, and led there to Jesus by the Blessed Mother. So help us, uh, Heavenly Father, uh, through your Son, Jesus, today, uh, particularly through his example, to find our way more fully into your beautiful, blessed, and beloved and loving heart, a heart filled with love for all of us, so much that you sent us your only Son. We ask every rich grace and blessing now upon our gathering, uh, and we ask it now in the name of your Son, Jesus, who is Lord forever and ever. Amen. And uh, we'll say, Viva la Virgen, Viva, Viva. <laughs> so, all right, well, listen, um, uh, Becky, maybe you could put up the slideshow for us to see. Um I, I just put a few slides together, everyone. I just want to kind of give you, first of all, a kind of a quick overview of all three nights um, and um, and some of our goals. So we're, you know, once the PowerPoint comes up, um, yeah, 
I hope that most of you are able to, uh, to see that. All right. We see here in the main theme, this is, this is, was given to you, uh, but as you signed up for the course, Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, gives us the following reflection, and we're going to unpack this. That Jesus identifies himself first and foremost as the Son of the Father. Hence, we make a series of reflections on the relationship between Jesus Christ and his Father, how it's expressed through his prayer, and then also how we participate in the sonship of Jesus through his prayer. Now then, my goal tonight would be to look at that first bullet point, the relationship of Jesus um, in terms of his, um, uh, between Jesus and his Father. But I'm certainly going to then say, well, what is that for us? What does it mean for us who are in Christ Jesus, who are through baptism made members of his body, all right? And so um, uh, we, I'd, I'd like maybe just one more slide. Um, so thesis one, this is, uh, this is his word, thesis one, basically, again, point one, all right? According to the testimony of Holy Scripture, the center of the life and the person of Jesus is his constant communion. And it says here communication, but I think a word for us would be better communion with the Father. All right. Again, notice that. Let's just look at it. According to the testimony of Holy Scripture, it's very clear in Scripture, in other words, that the very center of the life and person of Jesus is his constant communication uh, with the Father. I list three things there that we'll focus on tonight in different ways. I'm going to spend a lot of it on the last one, but how often Jesus speaks of his father. Okay. I mentioned just that one phrase, my father, or when he calls out father over 170 times in the gospels. Right. Um, likewise, I want to look a little bit at the term Abba, which is important for us. And then I want to also uh, look a little bit, at, not, not so much at, at the prayer, the Our Father, but again, how all of this impacts us and what the Lord wants for us today, all right? We may look at the Our Father in the next session, but for now, when I say Our Father there, I just, I don't, what I'm, I'm trying to say is that Jesus says, my Father and your Father. You know, Jesus, we are not children of the Father like Jesus is. He is by nature. We are by adoption, all right? So uh, there's always that, that distinction between my father, when Jesus speaks of his father, and uh, we sometimes he says, your father. Hmm? Um, so again, that's we want to apply what we learned tonight to our lives. All right. Now, there is this, um, let's talk a little bit about Jesus and his relationship um, to the father, first and foremost. But, you know, I want to begin with our very own struggles Many, all of us have had earthly fathers, um, and some of them are still with us. Some have passed on. My, my, my father and mother are both deceased now for many years. But um, I can say that um, my father still looms large in my heart and my life. <laughs> um, I can also say that um, he had a powerful effect. But the, the point I think that all of us have to accept when we talk about the Heavenly Father is that's going to be affected by our earthly experience with our own fathers. That that may have been good. It may have been difficult or painful. It may have been non-existent. Uh, it could be anything in between um, that we have have had, uh, hopefully mainly good relationships with our earthly fathers, but not everyone has. And there's going to have been some tension in that relationship. And we tend to bring our, our experience of fatherhood from our own family and our, our own earthly father 
into the relationship we have with the Heavenly Father. It's hard to completely avoid that, but we always have to, we know that we have to purify our relationship with the Heavenly Father from any earthly imperfections, however strong they may be, or even how mild they might be, to realize that the Father is not a Father like our earthly Father. It was maybe a Father imperfectly, but the Heavenly Father is perfect Father, filled with love for us. But it's not a love that's just what we might call cheap grace. You know, people tend today to reduce love to kindness and to be nice and affirming. And those are aspects of love, surely. But there are also aspects of love, especially if you've been a parent, and we've certainly all been children, where out of love, love, our parents have to say, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh, ain't happening. Nope. Answer is no. Um, Or they have to call us to account. They have to uh, sometimes punish us or teach us lessons anyway. And then maybe if that doesn't work, to do a little bit of punishment. But these things ideally are done always in love. Because we love our children, uh, we punish or we correct and reprove them as well as build them up and encourage them. And hopefully there's a good balance there. But don't simply reduce this idea of God's love for us um, as, a, as a father to some sort of sentimental kind of sitting on his lap, more like he was a grandfather and letting him just tell us how great we are. Um, he's going to be a true father who really loves us and wants what's absolutely best for us. So with all that in mind, just to sort of purify the conversation of maybe some of these things, no one is father like the heavenly father. No one is perfect father like he is perfect father. All right. Now, let's start with Jesus' experience with his father. I I don't know if you noticed or not, but Jesus was crazy about his father. (laughs) He, He really loved his father. He was talking about him all the time, all the time. My father, my father, my father, my father. I just come up with a little bit of a list here. You know, um, just just this is just a few of the quotes, but all things have been committed to be by my father. No one knows the son except the father. And no one knows who the father is except the son. My father, my father, for whoever does the will of my father is my brother and sister. Or again, I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Um, And I, I, I know the father and he knows me, my father and I, I lay down my life for my sheep as my father has told me. Or again, John 14, Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father, my father, my father will love him. See, Um, again, uh, John 10, my father, uh, uh, the father who has given to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. My father gave these sheep to me, you see. Or again, when Peter's trying to defend him, are you not aware, Peter, that I can call on my father? And he'll at once put it in my hands, legions of angels. Or again, he warns us, this is how my father in heaven will treat each one of you unless you forgive. So again, I could go on. I've got dozens more quotes. My father, my father, my father, my father. Almost like a broken record. See, even when he's testifying before the Sanhedrin and, and and the others, he says, for example, in John 8, he's saying, um, uh, you know, he he speaks of his father. And finally, the high priest interrupts him. Who is your father? Who is your father? You know, again, you, you know, he's almost irritated. Jesus keeps talking about his father. Who is your father? You see, says the high priest to him. And, um, and, and then again, uh, Jesus goes on to defend his divinity before them. But again, um, likewise, he speaks of his father with great love and obedience. He says, 
The son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. You see, um, I, I, I want that which my father wills. Uh, I, I have much to say about you and much to condemn you for, but I only do that which my father has told me to say and sent me to do. My father, he wants to obey his father. He wants to love his father. He does love his father. He's, he's, he's just very, very focused on the heavenly father. Now, we have a couple of um, passages um, where we see Jesus speaking directly to his father in prayer or prayerful language. Um, there, there, there are a few of these um, uh, passages I want to give to you. Uh, one of them is too long to read the whole one, but I just want to start with it. But the, the disciples had just returned from going out two by two, the apostles, and they come back. They're just thrilled. Demons were subject to us in your name. We were working miracles in your name. Great things. And Jesus said, oh, he says, come aside and rest a while. And at some point when he's talking to the disciples, he burst out into prayer himself. And he, he, he says he lifted his eyes to heaven. See, he lifted his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people and that he might give eternal life to all those you have given to him. And now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus, your son, whom you have sent. I've glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had from you before the world existed. Now, again, do you hear, first of all, the respect and the love that Jesus has for his father? At least twice in this very brief passage, he says, Father, I've glorified you. I want them to know your glory. Oh, Father, your glory is wonderful. It's just magnificent, you see. Um, and uh, again, he, um, um, he speaks then in deep gratitude for all that the Father has done for him and given him, right? And he goes on to say, this is my main goal. I want you to be glorified on earth. I want to accomplish the works that you sent me. So you see, here's a, a son who loves his father, who wants to be about his father's business, accomplish his father's will, who wants his father to be glorified, who wants his father to be loved and others to experience this glory. So again, let me just read a little bit and comment as we go. Just re read back over some of these words. First of all, Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven. Now that's a sign of reverence. I remember just, here's a kind of a dumb liturgy story. Uh, when I was a young priest, there was a certain priest. God bless him. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he's passed on now. I, uh, but I remember one time he kept saying to me, um, Charlie, when you say the, the canon, uh, you're looking up. Uh, but God isn't up there. But God is out there in the people. And I said, well, apparently Jesus never got your memo, Father, because uh, he looked up when he prayed. <laughs> anyway, but the idea is, that this is a sign of reverence. You're up there, I'm down here. In other words, a deep reverence of love, but but to say that, um, as Jesus can say, certainly in terms of his human nature, the Father, you're greater than I. I love you. You're my Father. But even as a member of the Trinity, all three members are co-equal. But nevertheless, Jesus can look up even as God and reverence his Father. Because we say in the, uh, you know, the Trinitarian theology that the uh, you know the father is is the uh, you know the the the, um, the generator and the son is the one who is generated. So again, there's a kind of an order even in the Trinity, and Jesus glorifies his father, although he's co-equal with him. 
um, as, uh, as, as being, you know, the source of, uh, the, you know, the source of life in the Trinity. So again, um, he looks up. That's the first thing. See his reverence. Look at his love for the Father as he looks up. Um, and um, also it says here, he says, Father, Father. Um, he doesn't say, oh, Lord, oh, God. He says, Father. Now, a lot of uh, biblical scholars think that frequently when these prayers are uttered by Jesus, although we only have one example of it written out in the New Testament, he was probably saying not Father in the formal sense, but Abba. Um, he, um, wh what is there, what is there mm, proof for this? Well, I don't know. Um, but to, to use the word, we're going to talk about the word Abba in a moment. One of the answers that some of the scripture scholars have given that he's probably actually in Aramaic using the word Abba is that would be the ordinary word for father. But beyond that, he doesn't use the more formal probably because this is so tender, so personal, so informal in a way that why use the title, the formal title father when he could say Abba, Abba. Now, Abba is not baby talk like that, that, uh, Abba is the thing that an adult child would call their father. Even today, if you go to the Holy Land, you know, you'll hear that uh, among both the Jews and the Arabs when they're calling out for their father. Abba, Abba means dad. It's, it's the familiar term. It's not baby talk. It's I, I but I would when my earthly father was here uh, on earth, I, and I'd call him. I, I wouldn't say, hello, father. How are you today, father? I'd say, dad. And so there, there's a family way of speaking here, you see. So. But again, it's, it's written here as Father, and that's where we'll keep it. But, but look at this. He says, Father. See, Father. He says, the hour has come. In other words, Jesus knows that now that this work of the spreading of the gospel is beginning to go forth, the time is coming soon for him to, to go to the cross and, and so on. And so he says, glorify, glorify your son, glorify your son, and um, that your son may glorify you. All right. So again, um, this is, um, he's speaking now uh, to his father in a very tender and a beautiful way. And uh, I should have told you, but I've transitioned now to John 17, to the beginning of the priestly prayer of Jesus. In fact, if you have a Bible, and I know you all do, because Father always tells you to have your Bible, you could open it up to uh, John 17. The, um, the, there's this beautiful and wonderful um, priestly prayer of Jesus. Now, I can't do the whole prayer with you. It's the entire chapter, all right? We don't have that kind of time today. But I want you to just, again, look with me and read along, if you can, with me with these words. So again, John 17 and verse 1, Jesus spoke these words. He lifted his eyes to heaven, great reverence, and he said, Father, all right, now, the hour has come. In other words, all through the Gospel of John, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His hour. What hour? Well, the hour when he would be taken uh, to the cross and, and, and offer up his life for the salvation of souls. He says, now the hour has come. Now he says, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. So he's not asking selfishly to be glorified. He's saying, I want to glorify you, Father. The world must know that I love you and obey you, so I go to the cross. But I, I ask you, give me glory only for this purpose, that I may glorify you. See, 
his whole purpose is to, he wants to glorify the father. Um, yes. And so how does he do that? By obeying him and by showing his father's power to deliver him from the, uh, from the jaws of death. All right. Now notice again, verse two, you granted him, namely the, the son authority over people so that he may give eternal life to those you have given him. All right. Now this is this, but look at this in verse three. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus whom you have sent. Now, you've heard me on this, many of you who've been with me for a while, and certainly with the ICC, and I've given a good number of talks. Eternal life doesn't simply mean to live forever and ever 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 and ever. It means, it does include the length of life, but fundamentally, the phrase eternal life must be seen as the fullness of life, the fullness of life. And so what's Jesus saying here? Father, to know you, and I and you with our Holy Spirit, to know you is to be fully alive, to see you in all your glory, to see you, to be with you, to enjoy the glory that I've enjoyed from, with you from the foundation of the world. That's heaven. You see, when I ask people to tell me, almost nobody talks about heaven anymore. That's the first big problem. But even when the topic does come up, if I were to give a survey of people and ask them, well, tell me a little bit about what do you think heaven is like? The average group of people would say things like, well, I, I, I won't lose my job. The weather will be perfect. Um, I won't get sick. I'll see my parents. Um, I'll get to meet Saint so-and-so or whatever. And they go on kind of like that. Nothing wrong with any of that. But I keep waiting. I keep waiting. Will they mention it? Will they mention? And the list goes on and on. And I finally say, stop. What have you left out? <laughs> and they, they don't mention God. Brothers and sisters, the heart of heaven is to be with God. You have in your heart an infinite longing. An infinite longing. And nothing worldly could ever satisfy it. Even seeing your mother or father again in heaven. That's not enough. You were made to know God. You were made to know him and to be just that he's the only one who can really satisfy your infinite longing. And Jesus is saying here, Father, you are heaven. To be with God is the heart of heaven. To see God, yes, as Trinity. And according you know, to, to that, that magnificent mystery that we celebrate and speak about and talk about, but at the, heart, at, the, at, the, at the end of this, Jesus is saying, Heavenly Father, you're the heart of heaven. I've known you from all eternity, and all oh, the joy of being with you and knowing you and loving you and seeing you and being your son and the Holy Spirit between us. And, oh, Father, I want them to see this glory. Oh, you have such glory. See how our Lord loves his Father? See? And this love that he has for him and that his main goal, even to be glorified himself, is only so that his father can be glorified. So it goes on verse four. I've glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. So again, how does he glorify his father? Obedience. Why is that important? Because, you know, uh, there is this passage where Jesus one time said to the, some of the disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I tell you? You know, we can go through all kinds of pious incantations and saying all kinds of lovely things. But at the end of the day, 
the Lord wants obedience more than a sacrifice. Hmm? That our real, our real sacrifice is to be obedience. That is to say that uh, we may bring money or things, they may have brought animals in the Old Testament, but it is obedience that really shows love for God and trust of him. And therefore, again, we have this magnificent call that was this example in Jesus. I glorified you. I gave glory. I magnified your glory on earth by obeying you, by accomplishing the work that you have given me to do. See, I, I've proclaimed your truth. I've called people to you. I've summoned you. I've given them examples. And now I go to you to in the supreme obedience to offer my life for the salvation of these souls you love. Okay. So again, love and obedience go together. And in this Lenten season, then for us, the glory, if you will, of Lent is for us to show greater obedience, which is another way of showing greater love for the Father. Okay? There is this love we should have for the Father that makes us want to obey Him. We're not obeying just because we have to. If that's all you got, go for it. But we're obeying because we want to, because we love Him. I want what God loves. I, I love whom God loves, and I love what God loves. I want what God loves and who God loves. And so this is this love that Jesus had for his father, that he went gladly he, he, to become incarnate and be among us and live and teach and bring people to the father and introduce and bring them to his kingdom. And then finally to go to the cross. And so again, uh, he cries out, I've glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus didn't just talk nice things about his father. My father's really great, man. You got to see my father, man. He's cool. He's the biggest God on the block, and he can beat any other God with both hands tied behind him. It's not like that. It's something deeper and richer. It's a love that bears fruit in deeds and obedience. You see, he loved his father, and his father loves us, and he loves us. All right. Now, moving into verse six, um, I'm not going to have time to go through a lot more verses, but let's read a little bit more. Father, I've revealed your name to those you've given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Well, <clears throat> you've got to kind of cross your fingers when you say that one, all right? <laughs> you know, but again, he speaks of us in the—it's kind of a what you might call a proleptic. That is to say, you're talking about something that will be more true in the future than it is right now. <laughs> That's a proleptic in, in literature, so— uh, Jesus is saying, they've obeyed your word, they've kept your word. Verse 7, now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. Well, they're kind of getting there. <laughs> um, for I have given them the words that you gave me. See, again, very important for Jesus. I did not, I only do what I see the Father doing. I, I don't say anything that's contrary to the Father. Whatever, whatever the Father says, whatever the Father does, the Son says also, the Son also does, okay, and so on. So again, verse 8, I've given them the words you've given me, and they, uh, they believe that you have, I'm sorry, and they have received those words, and they know with certainty that I've come from you. Now again, do you see how all this is sort of a proleptic? These apostles at the Last Supper, they're arguing, they're fighting. Philip says, hey man, show us the Father, that'll be enough for us, you know, and Jeff, you know, Thomas is interrupting and saying, you know, we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? So the Lord is praising these apostles but he knows their future and what they will become, see? And so that's why this is, this is what we call in, in, in not just scripture, but just in literature in general, a proleptic. 
And again, a proleptic means he's speaking of them, alluding to the perfection that they will one day have. All of them will eventually go to their deaths, praising the Lord, okay? Um, so, Father, protect them in your name. Now, let's, let me go on uh, further down. Go to verse 25. Uh, Righteous Father, although the world has not known you, I know you, and they know that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and I will continue to make it known, so that the love you have for me may be in them and I in them. So again, Jesus loved his Father, and his Father loved him. And in this great love, he acts, his whole identity is taken, everything about him, my Father, my Father, my Father, my Father. Uh, he, every word he utters to his Father is said in love and in a great joy and, and a beauty. Um, there's another example in John chapter 11, um, and this would be in the 41st verse of John 11, where Lazarus has, is being, he's calling Lazarus out of the tomb, and they're objecting, Lord, there'll be a stench and so on. But in John 11, we see the Lord also pray out loud. And notice again some similarities. Jesus lifted his eyes upward and said, all right, so, Father, I thank you, for you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. In other words, I'm, I'm working this miracle now, Father. I know you've heard me. Lazarus is going to come forth from this tomb. But the main goal here is that they believe that you sent me. See, not for my glory, not for people to say, wow, this guy is ma magnificent. It's for your glory, Father, and that they would believe that I am a gift sent by you, all right? So again, focus is on his Father. Um, now here we go to Mark 14. We're in the garden, and Jesus says this. Uh, I don't know the verse. I'm sorry, but just, it's just one verse, so don't, don't bother looking it up. Mark 14. Abba, Father. This is the one occurrence in the New Testament, where we hear Jesus quoted as using this term. Um, normally, it's just translated father, all right? But certainly in the Aramaic, he would not have said the formal father. They would have, he would have said something more akin to the word that is, means father, namely Abba, Abba. Abba, everything's possible from you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. All right, Father, what you want, I want. Uh, if you know whom you love, I love you. Love them, I love them. What you want, what you will, I will that. I want that. My human body recoils at what's about to happen to me. Uh, if it would be possible, take this cup. But nevertheless, here in my heart, my will, my heart is yours, Father. I love you. I love them, and I want what you want because that's why I'm here. You see. So I'm trying to show you a, then a portrait of the love of Jesus for his father. Now, um, Becky, could we just, for by way of a review, could you put up the, the slide again, slide number two? Okay, thesis one. According to the testimony of Holy Scripture, the center, do you see that word? The center of the life and person of Jesus is his constant communication with the father. Okay, he loves his father. He's always praying. At times, he frustrated his apostles because he would disappear. 
and go off somewhere to they find him praying in some lonely place. Where are you? Everyone's looking for you. Come on. What's the, what's the deal? Why? I said, I, I have to be with my father. I have to pray. See? Um, so he loved his father. He found constant time. Could you go to the previous slide? Our main theme. Jesus identifies himself first and foremost as a son of the father. Hence, we make a series of reflections on, first of all, the relationship of Jesus and his father. So again, first and foremost, he identifies himself as a son of the father. My father, my father, my father, my father. At other times, he takes up this image of the son of man, but his first identity comes simply from this. My father, my father, my father. Now, you see, th this notion of identity, um, the first thing that we want to learn from this, however, is a lot of people, you know, there's an old African proverb that says, goes something like, if I don't know who I am, anyone can name me. So you see, at times they wanted to name Jesus. They wanted to call him Messiah, but they didn't mean it in the biblical sense that they were thinking more of a political leader, of a war hero, of someone who would, uh, you know, kick the butts, pardon the expression of the Romans and so on. So they wanted to label or name him this, or on another occasion, they wanted to make him bread king. Hey man, you get us free meals. Uh, we heard that when the Messiah comes, he'd give them free bread. Well, we want some of that free bread. So they wanted to make him bread king, you know? Um, or another time, um, they wanted to sort of reduce him to a medical miracle worker. So he was praying and one day, there was a long line and he healed everybody in Capernaum who lined up that day. And, and the next day there was another long line and Peter says, come on, man, we got to get back to Capernaum. And he says, nope, we're not going back. We're going back to the next town because that's why I've come to preach the gospel. Um, now, in other words, they wanted to reduce him to Mr. Fix-It. They wanted to reduce him uh, uh, to a medical miracle worker. Good though that is, uh, that's, he won't be reduced that way. His identity is, I am the son of the eternal father. My father has sent me to, to, to do a work, to bring you to faith and to save your souls. And um, this is what I've come to do. So he's firm in this identity. The question for you right now, and a good Lenten question to ask, how firm are you in that identity? See, if I don't know who I am, anybody can name me. So people get up and they, they talk like this, and there's nothing evil or wrong about this, but I think it's, it's still misguided. Hello, I'm John, and I'm an alcoholic. Okay. Well, John, no. Um, you're a son of the, you're a, you're a child of God. That's your main identity, and that's what you've got to live out of, all right? You may struggle with alcohol. There may be a time to admit, okay, I, I, ha I am an alcoholic or whatever. All right, fine. But don't make that your identity. And so, But there's a lot of what we call today identity politics, isn't there? Where people take up these identities that are not of God, and sometimes they're even opposed to what God, so these transgender folks are, I'm this or I'm really that. No, you're what God made you to be. And you and I have one job, if you will, in this world, in terms of ourselves, and that is to become the man or the woman that God created us to be. See, your life isn't just about you and what you want. Your identity is that you are a son or a daughter of God. You belong to the Father. He made you. He's always known about you. Before you were ever formed in your mother's womb, God knew you and thought about you and loved you and prepared for you and got your parents to meet. But before that, your grandparents and your great-grandparents, all in just the right combination so that you would be just as you are. 
And then he knits you together in your mother's womb and you're wonderfully, fearfully made as you are from God. And every one of your days was written in this book before one of them ever came to be. You see, your identity must be the same as Jesus, that you love the Father from whom all life comes. You love him and you are, you're, you're eager to satisfy him. And you, your identity is in, in who that, that you come from God and that you have, you know, have been, you have been made by God for something that he decides. Now, so again, we often see people get lost in their careers sometimes. One of the first things you get asked is, well, what do you do? And they're looking for a career so they can somehow identify you. All right. It's not evil or wrong, but it's, it's much lower on the scale. So everyone said, sometimes someone say, well, where, where do you come from? I said, well, I come from the heart and the mind of God. And they kind of laugh. <laughs> and I said, oh, 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 you're talking about my human. Well, I come from my mother's womb. Okay. What city were you born in? Oh, oh, Chicago. Okay. But, you know, I mean, you see what I'm saying? How we are asked to under-identify ourselves or to in some way identify ourselves with something that's secondary or tertiary or much further down the list. You, I, need to learn to be like Christ, that our whole identity is caught up in our love for God the Father. Okay? Now, uh, a couple of things here to add, and I'm going to move into um, a reading that we had today. Um Let's um, let, let's just talk a little bit more about this idea of Abba. The St. Paul says in Galatians and in Romans, almost the same identical thing. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Abba. Which again, I told you before, is not baby talk. It is what, but it's family talk. This is what, a um this is what an adult child in the holy land even today refers to their father they say abba abba and again if you go there you might not know a word of aramaic or hebrew but you'll hear that word frequently going back and forth you know abba abba you know abba and um so again there's this beautiful word and what what it is is it's a family word in other words the work of jesus let's talk about a kind of a, a journey for a moment in our understanding of Marian theology and our understanding of Marian devotion, one of the things that we pray, we run to Mary so that through her immaculate heart, she'll bring us closer to the sacred heart of her son, Jesus. All right. But what's Jesus' main thing? Jesus wants to bring us to the heart of his father. So Mary brings us to Jesus and Jesus brings us to his father. There's a beautiful line, and we'll look at it not more on another night, not, not this night, but we're what did Jesus Christ do? He opened our path again to the heart of the Father. In the book of Hebrews, it says that we have now been restored to the heart of the Father through the veil that was rent, namely the veil in his flesh. In other words, through that open wound of Christ, we enter through that veil and unto the heavenly Father. Jesus brings us back to the heart of the Father, hmm? to the heart of the Father who loves us. You know, think about it. In the Garden of Eden, after they sinned, Adam and Eve went hiding when they heard God coming. And there was this plaintive cry of God. Adam, where are you? Adam, Adam, where are you? Now, God knew where Adam was, right there behind that bush. He's not so much asking 
an, a locational question, but Adam, where are you? Where's your heart? Your heart went off my radar. Adam, Adam. Finally, Adam comes out. And God says, well, what's happened? He says, well, that, that woman you put here with me gave me fruit to eat. And so I ate it. Ah. I said, uh, so, but I hid because I, I, uh, I, 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 was, I was afraid because I was naked. He said, naked? Who told you you were naked? Oh, you've eaten of the fruit, he said. Uh, but, but again, look at that question that God asked him. Adam, who told you you were naked? In other words, I didn't tell you you were naked. Who told you you were naked? Now, add in something else there. Because you see, even these moments that sound like a stern God coming to beat him up, Adam, where are you? It's a kind of a plaintive cry of love. And then there's this other aspect of it where he says, who told you you were naked? I didn't tell you that. So change the, change the statement or the question. Who told you you were stupid? Who told you you were ugly? Who told you that you're not able? Who told you that you're stupid? You know, whatever. You fill in the blank. Whatever negative. I didn't tell you that, says the Lord. And so God then announces the first good news that he'll make the woman and the devil enemies. And one day, uh, one of her sons, her seed will rise and crush Satan's power. So all of that moment of great sorrow, God did have to let them experience the consequences of their sin. But at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, there is this beautiful love of God even manifest there. Adam, where are you? Put your name in that sentence. You know, I'm looking at some of your names. Karen, where are you? Rodrigo, where are you? You know, Lucille, where are you? Becky, where are you? Charles, where are you? You see, it's a beautiful cry. And maybe at the beginning of Lent to hear God the Father just cry out, you know, your name. Where are you? Where are you? See? Okay. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not doing so well. He said, well, who told you you weren't doing well? Okay. You see the vision. All right. Now, this beautiful word then, Abba, Paul is saying, you see, this is what the Holy Spirit wants to work in you, that you have a divine affection for the Father, a divine affection for the Father. That is to say, it's not just a human affection, but a divine affection. You have the very, you love God, not just with human love, but with the very love of God that you receive through that act of charity. I mean, through that, uh, the, the theological virtue of charity, but also through the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Jesus spirit, the love of Jesus for his father. Oh, you see, you get caught up in the love of Jesus for his father, you see. And what a magnificent gift to begin to love the father more and more. Now, I'm running later than I want, but let me just say one other thing, and I want to read you a scripture and then get some I want to ask you some questions or have you ask me. But listen, brothers and sisters, this is a journey for most of us. We've had experiences with earthly fathers and things that may do that. I, I will say this, though, as a personal testimony. Um, early in my life, I had a rough relationship with my father. My father could be, he was a good man, but he could be very strict and stern and had anger issues and so on. And I think I found the, the Heavenly Father to be quite distant. I was close to Mary and to some extent Jesus, um, but I, I, um, the Father and I were rather distant. But I can tell you now that after many years of both therapy and spiritual direction and deliverance and through the sacraments and the reading of the Word of God, that of all the members of the Trinity, I think I had the most tender relationship with the Father. Um, it's, um, and it's like a miracle. I mean, only the Lord could do that, you know. And I, I had to make some journeys with my earthly father to help clear the, some of the baggage, and I did. 
by God's grace. Um, but I can tell you um, that this isn't just because you feel sometimes distance from the father um, doesn't mean it has to stay that way. And the most precious thing that Jesus wants to give you is to, that you can start to love the father like he loves his father. Oh, if only you knew my father, see, if only you knew him, if only you knew him and your life would, so many things would be different in your life. Now, with all that in mind, I want to raise an issue that came up in the gospel today for Ash Wednesday. Um, because in effect, Jesus teaches us in that gospel from today about what happens to us if we don't know the Father. And I don't have time to read the whole passage, but it's really this three examples of the same thing. Jesus talks in Matthew 6, where we read today in, in the Ash Wednesday, this would be in the Roman Rite. Uh, not all of you go to the Roman Rite, I know, but again, it's um, Matthew 6, the problem, the so-called problem of hypocrisy. And the Lord it, it says this, he, he says, um, I'll just read you the one about, um, you know, there's almsgiving, fasting, and, and, and prayer. So let me just do the one with almsgiving, because they all have the same basic formula, all right? Take care not to perform righteous deeds in order that people may see them. Otherwise, you'll have no recompense from your heavenly Father. Underline that phrase, all right? Um, but when you give alms, do not, do not blow a trumpet before you, as do the hypocrites who do so in the synagogues and in the streets to win the praise of men. I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your almsgiving may be secret, and your Father who sees in secret, will repay you. Now, Jesus raises a problem here, because you see, if you don't know the Father, you're going to tend in a lot of directions towards sins, and one, the main one of which is hypocrisy. Notice he uses this word hypocrite several times. Now, what is a hypocrite? See, in our modern English, we tend to reduce the notion of hypocrisy to, you say one thing and you do another. And if the charge sticks, it's pretty humiliating. But you see, there's much more to hypocrisy than that. In fact, it's sort of a, it's an ugly sin and we don't want to have anything to do with it. But at the end of the day, hypocrisy is a much more human problem. It's rather poignant. And there's something quite, um, there's something quite almost tragically beautiful about this struggle. Um, again, he say, what is a hypocrite? If you really look at this definition and Jesus repeats it two more times. What is a hypocrite? Now, first of all, the word hypocrite in Greek means actor, right? Uh, he, we're going to go down to the theater and watch the hypocrites. <laughs> that comes off poorly in English, but it would just simply mean we're going to go down to the theater and listen or watch the actors. Hypocritos in Greek just means actor. But again, this, it's used both the, not just literally, but also figuratively. So, But what is a hypocrite if you use the definition that Jesus has working here. Here's a hypocrite, and I'm going to say it a couple of times because you got to get this right. A hypocrite is the uh, hypocrisy is the sad reduction of the human person to a lonely actor on a stage because they don't know the Father. So there's three dimensions here, and that last one's a an important one. Hypocrisy is the sad reduction of the human person 
to a lonely actor on a stage. They're desperate for applause. Why? Because they don't know the father. So what's the solution to hypocrisy? Know the father. Your heavenly father will see what you do. That's all you need. But you see, for most people, that's not all they need. So, well, I don't, I, 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 I've heard about God the Father. He's up there somewhere. I know somehow he loves me, but I don't really know him that well. And, um, you know, uh, um, the, 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 um, um, you know, there's a, you know, I'm just kind of lost and uh, um, I'm desperate for applause down here. But they don't know the Father. She's, so I, I need you to applaud me. You're right here. I know you. And not only that, but you can give me money and stuff that I might need, you know, pay the help, pay the bills. So I, I don't know him. He's up there. He's kind of a stranger. For many people, God the Father is just a stranger. He's someone they've heard about, but they never really met. And so Jesus is warning here that if you don't know the Father, you get very quickly reduced to the state of hypocrisy, like a lonely actor on a stage, desperate for applause. Do you like me? Am I doing well? Will you pay me well? See? Desperate. Why? Because you don't know the Father. Notice, it's the sad reduction of the human person to a lonely actor. That's a sad reduction because you're not a lonely actor on a stage. You're a son or a daughter of God. And he loves you. He loves you in a, a strong way. He will punish you and correct you where necessary. But at the end of the day, you know he loves you. That's who you are. You should never be desperate for human applause. But guess what? We are. We are. And because Why are we that way? Because we don't know the Father. Now, therefore, Jesus says, don't worry about the applause. They, they, give, they do, but they give alms, they pray publicly, they do all this stuff because they want to win the praise of men, like a lonely actor on the stage. Not with you. It's enough for you that your heavenly Father knows what you're doing. Or is it? That's why Jesus says, I love my father. And I want to bring you to my father so that you can love him and be loved by him like I do. And when that starts to happen in your life, you're not going to be desperate for human approval. See, so many of us, we're so afraid of rejection. We're so afraid of being laughed at or ridiculed or somehow rejected because we don't know the father. But once we do, see, so much is repaired. And this is why, again, going back then, maybe one last time, Becky, could you put up slide number two? The heart of Jesus' identity, the very heart of it was he knew. Jesus identifies himself first and foremost as the son of the father. First and foremost, he identifies himself as the son of the father. For Lent, you and I need to make this journey to the Father. Go to Mary, Mother Mary, so that she can lead you closer to the sacred heart of her son. And she's certainly done that for me. But also, as you're now in the sacred heart of the son, let him lead you more fully and perfectly and beautifully to the heart of the Father. And that's not a bad Lenten goal. Okay. So again, this is something I, I, I want to, st I'm going to end here for tonight. But you see what Jesus says to us in that gospel. He says, if you don't allow this to take place in your life, a lot of stuff goes off track because you're running around trying to please man. 
And God has a simplification program. He says, why don't you just fear the Lord and you don't have to fear any man? Now, again, fear doesn't mean um, running cringing fear, but a, a fear rooted in love. I really love the Father and I want to please him. And, and, and that's really all that matters to me. And it's not just lip, I'm not just saying a slogan. It's really true. Your life begins to fall into line. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be given you besides. Why do you always run after all these things that the pagans are worried about, says Jesus? My father knows what you need before you ask him. Go to him. You're always worried. You're always running around worried, worried, worried. Look at you because you don't know the father. Let me lead you to the father. A final thought, and then we'll open it up for questions and comments. Jesus said something after he rose from the dead that he had not said until that time. He never said it during his public ministry. He only said it after he rose. And that is this, peace be with you. See, because now that he's reconciled us to the heart of the Father, there is true shalom. There is peace. See, but only peace is found only in the heart of the Father. No one comes to the Father says Jesus, except through me. And in the heart of the Father, there is shalom. There is peace. But it has to come through that journey to the heart of the Father. And that's not a bad way to see Lent. All right. So from the Cardinal's writings to our ears. <laughs> okay. So we have, I think it looks like David has a question. And, and maybe also, Becky, you want to kind of moderate some of this, but I see David has his hand up. So Certainly. Thank you so much, Monsignor. What what an incredible journey we've started tonight uh, in the first of our three days that we get to be with you. And we'll start with David on screen. Um, go ahead and ask your question for Monsignor. Sure. Um, Monsignor, thank you. Um, I, I hope I'm clear with this question, but you know, when, when I think of the father, I always think also of the prodigal son and you know the relationship between the son and the father. Mm -hmm. Isn't it possible that we can squander that gift? Doesn't it require action on our part? Because I, I often argue with a good friend of mine who's a, who's a Protestant and says, I can't see that once, you know, if, if once I accept God, that he would ever let me, you know, you know, wander from his presence. And and, and to me, it just doesn't seem it, it, it seems like we really need to, to you know, actively yeah. seek that relationship with the father. Mm -hmm. You certainly we certainly do. Um, the father is a gentleman. He will not force himself into our life. I will say this, that there's two sons in the story, the prodigal son. Um, there is this um, first son who does squander everything uh, through a life of loose living. And, uh, you know, he's, he falls so low that he's looking up to pigs. That's pretty low, huh? Trying to find out whether rock bottom has a basement or something, you know? Um, so... Um, he doesn't make light of sin, but he does come to his senses and return to his father. And there he finds happiness. Okay. And look at the beautiful picture of the father's mercy and love. And Jesus is saying, this is what my father's like when you repent. You see? Now, there's the second son, though. And that's less certain what happens. The second son is brooding and angry and bitter. He says, you never even gave me a kid goat to celebrate with my friends. And by the way, brothers and sisters, a little note to the flock here. The goal in life is not to celebrate with your friends, it's to celebrate with the Father. That's the goal of your life, okay? All right, now that's, that's an aside. But you never gave me a kid goat. I, I never disobeyed one of your orders. Now, you can see that he has a relationship with his Father where he's obedient, but he's distant. 
there isn't a real love there. There's a tolerance, a kind of let's keep this guy at bay by following his commands, but there's no real love there. Uh, and the but and the father, this is an incredible picture of the father. He's pleading with the son. No ancient father would plead with his son about anything. You will be in here or you'll be disowned or I'll have you killed at an honor killing. You know, no, unthinkable. And yet Jesus says, this is what my father's like. He's pleading. Now, the son doesn't want to go in because that rotten brother, that rotten son of yours is in there. And then the story ends. Now, tell this to your Protestant friend. Does he end up changing his mind and going into the feast with the father on the father's terms, in other words? Or does he stay outside brooding in a kind of a hellish anger? See, that's why there's a hell. Because not everybody wants what the father's offering. You see, some people look into heaven and they see their enemy. They don't want any part of it. But the father says, well, but I love your enemy. And he's repented. I don't want, that wouldn't be heaven for me. Okay, well, you don't have to come in. But I'm pleading with you to change your mind. So there is, um, there are terms. And it isn't just the first son that we need to look at. Uh, because he he repents. The second son, I will not enter the feast. Um, well, you don't have to. And the story ends. Why does it end? Because you have to finish the story. Do you want heaven and God on God's terms? Or do you want a personal designer paradise? Well, you're always free to make other arrangements, but they're always going to be hell compared to heaven. Okay. Quick, a quick summary of that parable, but it's a lot there. And it doesn't simply affirm this idea that once saved, always saved. It doesn't. There is, like you say, a work to do to stay with the Father, rooted in love. I want what he wants. And if he wants me to love my brother who's returned and he's happy, I am too. Christina, um, up on screen, who has your hand raised, go ahead and take yourself off of mute. Um, Thank you, Monsignor. That was really, really great. And I have kind of a practical question. Um, that I feel like you touched on and probably going to go into it later. So if you, if you are, feel free not to fully answer it right now. But um, I'm just wondering, like, with everything you're talking about, how do we really, like, do what you're advising us? Like, how do we grow in that identity of being a child of God? How do we grow in that relationship with the Father? Um, especially for those that maybe deal with, like, mental health issues, like depression or anxiety, and, like, really struggle to have that not necessarily sentiment like is it enough to just have the will and say like okay even though i feel really really bad right now like i no. i know i'm the child of god and i'll call that good like how do we how do we work through that and come closer to the heart of the father in that right well i think um that um a couple of thoughts that i can only just say incidentally and that you're right we will develop it a little bit tomorrow but i i think that um first of all you have to ask for it you know it's not something you know, there's an old saying in the James 4, chapter 4 and verse 2, you have not because you ask not. So, you know, Heavenly Father, I, I don't feel like I have this close relationship, and there may be any number of reasons for it, but Heavenly Father, I, I do want it, and I do ask you to go to work to accomplish it. Lord Jesus, you want to lead me to the heart of the Father. Take away whatever's in me that's resisting. Help me. And by the way, uh, another thing is don't fail to pray for a desire for it if you don't even have that. Some people, when it comes to God, just want to be left alone, especially if there's depression or sorrow or fear, anxiety, because well, God might ask something of me that'll be too hard. And I, I, I just, I'm going to live at a distance, like the second son in the parable that, you know, he kind of, he was at a distance from his father, you know? So 
I would say, first of all, ask for, pray for the desire for this deeper union with the Father. Ask for it. But also stay close to the, to the Lord um, by frequent reading of scriptures. And when I say that, I don't just mean like you read the, the text. But you're about, when you, before you open up the scriptures, when you read, you're about to open up a letter of love from God. This is, this is from God. God is about to speak to me. Be still, my soul. But stay close to God in Scripture because, again, you get to know a person through long talks and conversations and relationships and ups and downs, and this is kind of how you get to know them. Well, we don't talk with God the way we talk to each other necessarily, we, but we do listen to him through his holy word and through his teachings. He also speaks to us in the events of our day and so on. And at his heart, pay, prayer is paying attention to God. So try to have that attitude of prayer when you say, I'm paying attention, Lord. What are you saying to me in the events of my day or in the scripture that I just read or, or what have you, you know? Um, finally, because you mentioned sort of depression or anxiety or whatever, whatever there's a lot of that. I, I want to say to you that when it comes to this matter, especially when we're dealing directly with God, and we'll look at this a little bit more tomorrow, We've got to learn how to surrender our demand to understand everything. We get very frustrated. God, where are you? You know, things aren't going my way. Well, how do you know they're not going your way? Well, because I know what I want. Well, but that might not be what's really best. Apparent good doesn't mean it's actual good, you know. Um, so again, I think that somewhere a lot of our anxiety and also anger and fear come from our demand to understand everything and what's going to happen and how it's going to happen, how it makes sense and how it fits together. So Job did that. And what did Job get for an answer? Well, God asked him a few questions that he couldn't answer. And he said, well, if you don't even get that stuff, how can I tell you the more complicated stuff? I tell you what, Job, um, what do you think? And Job just put his hand over his mouth. In other words, that non-answer of God is Job. If I were to tell you everything I was doing and why, you wouldn't even understand it. All you would hear would be thunder. So there's a certain humility as little children that we go. You know, think when you were just less than one years old, you could barely walk. You're still crawling. Your father, and you go to your father, and if, if you could, you couldn't. But I mean, we were to ask him, you know, tell me the reason of my life. And he's talking, but you don't understand English yet. You're not there. You're, you're not at a place that you can understand. So we go before God like little children. And we have to surrender our demand to understand everything because um, we're not going to understand everything. Not now. Jesus says, does say one day when you see me again, you'll have no more questions to ask me. <laughs> but for now, we do. But there's a humility. And I'm not saying you don't have these things, Christine. I'm just saying this would be a general answer to people who are kind of in that cycle of fear and anger and, you know, stuff with God. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Monsignor. As people are beginning this Lenten journey, we have um, someone writing in asking, uh, you know, we talk about prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, the three of them, but how specifically does fasting help experience, help enhance this Lenten experience in order to draw us closer? Well, I, I think most people who, who are serious about fasting, you know, the, the fast we're required to do in the Western, right, is not really a fast at all. I mean, it's, a, it's a silly, it seems silly to call it a fast. But if you've ever really been without food for more than a day, I suppose there, there are some people that just experience anger and crankiness, but most people who are reasonably spiritual recognize that it kind of creates a certain, a certain cleansing 
in the soul. Um, we're more alert. Um, we're, we're, we tend to be, um, um, again, uh, more open to spiritual promptings and so on. Um, there's long been appreciated an understanding that when you stop putting all this food in this little hole in your face and that you're working to digest it all day long, that there's a certain freeing up of resources uh, for, uh, for other more high-level things and reflections. Is it 100% of the time? No. Um, but I think that there, there's, there's a long, long history of knowledge that fasting can bring one to a state of where the soul is much more open to God. Uh, sometimes you have to empty something before God can fill it. You see, so if I've got a box full of sand, God cannot put gold bricks in it. I have to pour out the sand. And fasting is one way of doing that. Fasting could be from food, but we could also see other types of abstinence, like from certain things like alcohol or drink or maybe YouTube or whatever you decide. You know, there can, you make room, see, and that's where the growth comes from. Now, a final thought, though, with fasting, of course, there has to be limits to it. You know, we don't want to engage in unhealthy practices, there comes a point where the, the benefits from fasting tip into negative because you don't, you know, we do have bodies and we're expected to take reasonable care of them. But it it's remarkable how um, you, you, you skip a meal or two and you feel a lot lighter. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Monsignor. Um, we'll just do one more question as we're starting our series tonight. And looking at this development of the relationship with the father um, and maybe even in particular to uh, how you're speaking on this surrender of the demand to understand. But we have someone writing in asking, how do we know that we are developing that relationship with the father as opposed to a relationship with Jesus? How do we distinguish those? I'm, I'm tempted to answer it two different ways. One is, it doesn't matter. Jesus says the father and I are one, you know, to have seen me is to have seen the father, you know, have I been with you so long and still you don't know me? I mean, that's one way to approach it to say, well, I think um, there is a, uh, um, ideally there isn't a huge distinction to be made. And let's avoid any childish ideas that Jesus would be jealous if you're not talking to him as much as to the father or the Holy Spirit saying, man, nobody talks to me. I mean, so clearly this isn't a problem inside the Trinity. Now, but there might be some other ways, I think, though, of determining that we're, we're experiencing a, a closer union with the Father um, by the fact that um, our, our um, uh, paradoxically, that our, our relationship with Jesus feels also stronger and more and more um, almost mystical uh, because the Father will help us to love Jesus, you see. Um, no one can call Jesus the Lord except in the Holy Spirit, but likewise, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the father is, is the one who helps us to know his son, Jesus. Now, um, but I, I would only say just that I can only speak personally that there was just something of a, of a kind of fatherly love that I experienced from the heavenly father, um, that, um, I don't know. I just implicitly recognize it as the father, um, I, I, I think, you know, I, I know so much of the, the sound of Jesus' voice from the Gospels. Uh, the Father's voice seems a little more remote in the fact that I'm able to hear it more and experience it more powerfully and read some of those passages of the Old Testament more fruitfully tells me that, you know, this is the Father I'm experiencing. And um, um, 
So I, I, that's about the best I can do. Um, there should be some blurriness about it, as I say, because of the nature of, the, you know, Jesus saying the Father and I are one and so on. Okay. Great. Thank you so much, Monsignor. Um, if you would please close us in prayer for the evening. Yeah, and by the way, just to look ahead, tomorrow we're going to look at, uh, I won't read the whole thesis, but Jesus died praying. Okay. How about prayer and union with his father in and through prayer, we're at the heart of his life with the father. Okay. So that's what we'll be looking ahead to tomorrow. We'll look at some of the priestly prayer, but also we'll look at his prayer in the garden and on the cross, particularly Psalm 22 and so on. All right. Well, listen, um, we, we thank you. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. Um, you've been good to us. And at a time when we were lost and could not uh, be found, you you searched us out. You cried out, Adam, where are you? Um, you? You called us by name. And we thank you and we praise you. We love you. And so much did you love us that uh, it wasn't enough for you to send an angel to rescue us, but you sent your own son. And how can we ever uh, be more grateful and uh, appreciative of your love for having done that? And uh, thank you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for creating us. Thank you for loving us to the end. Thank you for creating all things through your son, Jesus, the word, and who's saving us through him. And thank you for all you've done. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We bless you. And so we ask all these things now, Heavenly Father, in your holy name. Uh, the holy name of your son, Jesus, I say, in the, who is Lord forever and ever. Amen. And viva la Virgen, viva la Mary, Maria. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.